As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. You know, I um, I always enjoy seeing how much of a grasp on current pop culture you have. Oh, God. So I have a question from this week's news for you, which is, who bought his wife... Oh, God, yeah. ...a talking hologram of her dead father for her 40th birthday? Kanye West? You've just Googled that. No, I haven't. I just guessed. It is. It's the right answer. Kanye West... Has has bought Kim Kardashian a, a a talking, moving hologram of her of her late father saying encouraging things, which I, I, I know that you are a very very thoughtful present buyer. Do you not think that's a bit creepy? I don't think that's a great present. It doesn't seem quite right to me. I don't think so. But I, I just wanted to know what you thought because I was thinking of maybe getting you a, a golden brown. No, no, I think you don't want a hologram. In fact, I do find it slightly I, funny actually. Various people have got cardboard cutouts of me, which some people would say had more personality than, than I did while I was Labour <laughs> leader. But uh, um, and it is slightly disconcerting, and partly because I look quite young in the cardboard cutouts. But I don't think I'd want a cardboard cutout of myself or anyone else, for that matter. It's like the picture of Dorian Gray in reverse. Yeah, I just I think it's sort of generally the sort of to be avoided, don't you think? I think so. Okay. I mean, you're a very imaginative present buyer. In fact, I'll let you into a secret, which is my children have eaten quite a lot of those opal fruits, but in an extraordinary gesture of restraint, they've decided that they can't 
eat one of the packets because it's going to be a collector's item in future years. Who who do they think will be collecting it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> they think it's limited edition, very valuable. I was doing some reading up on opal fruits the the other day and they the the name opal fruits it was a competition winner suggested it so the confectionery company said we're going to bring out these new sweets yeah what should they be called it was in this country somebody suggested opal fruits that became the name and then they launched those same sweets a few years later in america under the name starburst but opal fruits was was the original name and when were they launched here i think it was maybe the early 60s i've got 61 in my head from but it's been a few days since i was on the wikipedia page but it sort of was i remember the whole marathon in to Snickers and Opal Fruits into Starburst as being relatively controversial. Was this a sort of American imperialist act then, the sort of that eventually they decided to change the name? I think so. I mean, this sounds like one of these things that Tony Blair would have had a strong opinion on and brought up in Parliament to curry favour with the tabloids. Do you think? Or do you think that? Do you think he would have done? But do you not remember he brought up Deirdre Barlow going to prison in Parliament? Oh. Yes, I do vaguely remember that. <laughs> this seems like one of those kinds of things. I bet if you were to check Hansard, there's some mention of opal fruits in there. I was about to say a simpler time. Yes. Uh, a, significant, a significantly um, a simpler time. So so how are you feeling b- uh, about the US election? Because, of course, by the time this episode comes out, it'll just be a couple of days. I think we just shouldn't tempt fate, really, don't you think? Okay, so we're saying it's... A, for, for listeners who listen after Tuesday, it's going to be wo- woefully out of date. And B... You know, you, you just can't, I mean, dot, 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 you know what I mean? Uh, should, we, should we talk about what we're going to uh, talk about? Yes. Well, this week we're going to be talking about how to regain control of our data. Over the last few years, we've all learned about the explosion of data collection and the many problems it's caused from concentrating power in the hands of a few big tech firms to undermining democracies to fueling the rise of targeted ads and content. We're going to be looking at some ideas to give us more control of data, both as individuals and as a society. First, we're talking to philosopher Carissa Veliz. She spent years thinking about the ethics of privacy and has written a great new book called Privacy is Power. We'll be asking her about some of the solutions that she's calling for. And then we're talking to Jack Hardings from an organization called the Open Data Institute. They've been working on ways we can collectively control how data is used in order to benefit us all. And for our cheerful person this week, a bona fide national treasure, broadcaster David Dimbleby. I know that you've been really keen to get him on because you love his new podcast. I do. It's called The Fault Line. It's all about the run-up to the Iraq war. And we're going to be talking to him and, and getting his thoughts on... Uh, i tell you what I'm really intrigued to ask him about. This is slightly self-referential. Is, am I the first politician in his many, many decades of being a broadcaster to interview him? Of course, Yes. And if, if it is, then I feel a heavy responsibility because there's kind of legions of politicians who kind of want, might want me to get my own back. In, in, on the scale of least feared to most feared as uh, an interviewer, where does he sit? Well, I think he was very – remember, he didn't do that many interviews. And so the ele- interviews he, – he tended to do a, a party leader's election interview. Um, and he was, you know, he was a pretty tough – interview the one i did with him was an audience one so he wasn't exactly doing a long interview um so i'd say he was a pretty tough interview well i hope you uh give him a taste of his own medicine then we're not that kind of show are we really no uh what's your reason to be cheerful this week okay so my reason to be cheerful i'm not going to talk about my swimming but um 
it does sort of relate to it, which is I read this piece. I, basically, I'm not a big fan of November, if I'm honest, because at least I feel like December, you've got Christmas. And then by January, the days are getting longer. Whereas November, you sort of feel you're on the kind of down slope towards shorter and shorter days, less and less daylight. Anyway, I thought this would appeal to you. It's a New York Times article about what Scandinavians can teach us about embracing winter. And apparently Norway has got a concept called friluftsliv. And that's a terrible pronunciation. Like fresh air, open air living or something? Uh, correct. Open air life, according to Per Kare Jakobsen, a researcher at the University of Tromsø, who studies friluftsliv. Friluftsliv. Right, friluftsliv. I'm a friluftslivite. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, uh, my, mine is the opposite. Mine is an indoor pursuit. Ah. My wife and I went to the cinema for the first time together uh, since, I don't know, February, March, may, maybe this year. I can't remember. We went to see the new Miranda July film, which is called Kajillionaire, which I recommend highly. It's... Um, I don't know if you ever saw any of her films. Uh, she's a performance artist. She's done some really interesting stuff. She did You, Me and Everyone We Know, I think, was her first one. And she did one called The Future. Um, and, and this one is is strange and brilliant and funny. But my reason to be cheerful wasn't just the film. It was being in the cinema and judging other people, trying to see whether I thought they were genuinely from the same household or not. <laughs> I mean, that is, you're such a sort of curtain twitcher, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you are a real curtain twitcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pleasure to be had in it. Uh, and, and what was your judgment in the end? I think there are a few people who were uh, perhaps not following the spirit of the rules. But when I tried to report them to the usher, uh, he was having none of it. Mm. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to start, we're going to talk to Carissa Valise, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oxford. She is also author of a fantastic book, Privacy is Power, Why and How You Should Take Back Control of Your Data. Carissa, hello. Hi, Jeff. I'm really interested in, in how you ended up being a, a go-to person on this stuff, because you, your, your background is philosophy. What, what is the leap a person makes from philosophy into tech and privacy? At the beginning, it was a very personal issue. I went to the archives in Spain to research the history of my family. And I dug out a lot of things that our family had never told us. And that made me wonder whether we had a right to know those things that they hadn't told us about. So being a philosopher, I looked to philosophy for some answers. And I didn't find many. And the few answers that I found weren't very satisfying to me. So it just seemed to me that there was a huge gap there. And that summer, Edward Snowden came up with his revelations that we were being surveilled at a mass scale. And it just seemed all the more obvious that somebody needed to work on that pretty quickly. So, so we, something we've talked about a lot on the, the podcast over the years is the various problems of big tech. Um, and, and you're of the opinion that privacy is right at the middle, uh, at the centre of these, these problems. Why, why is that? Why is, it, why is that your viewpoint? Yeah, that's true. Many times I find that many critiques about tech are interesting, um, but they don't go to the root problem. And the root problem, in my view, is a business model that depends on the violation of the right to privacy. And if you go back in history and ask ourselves, like, how did tech start it? How did tech become big tech? Well, it became big tech by selling our personal data 
or by selling access to us through our personal data so that we could uh, have be exposed to personalized content. And at the beginning, it seemed like a win-win situation. And if you think about it, you know, it doesn't sound too bad to uh, have content that you're interested in and the people selling ads earn money and we get to have cool things like Google search and Google Maps. But it just turns out that privacy is important and a right for a reason. And it's very dangerous to have personal data sloshing around and collecting so much of it. And it just so happens that personalized content becomes very toxic because uh, political power is co-opted and our public sphere essentially gets, gets fragmented into individual spheres and then it becomes all the more difficult for citizens to have a rational and friendly conversation about their day-to-day and their political reality. Talk to me a little bit more uh, about that because I think I have evolved somewhat since we had our first conversations about this. But my position, Jeff, has evolved. I have a little, <laughs> only a little bit. My, my position used to be that if um, twenty years ago I turned on a radio station, commercial radio station, that radio station was targeting me. Or if I walk past a poster in the street, that poster is there advertising something that you know the, the people who are selling that space think will apply to a majority or, or the uh, a plurality of people walking past that poster. And this is just a much more targeted version of that. There's there's less waste than there was in that era. Now, as, as time's gone on, I've realised that there's a huge amount of privilege that goes with not being worried about what happens to my data, um, because what happens to my data might be one thing, but then people in a different situation, a different type of democracy or, or whatever might might be a whole other thing. What are the other concerns around this? There are two different kinds of concerns. So one is the kind of risks that are involved in just collecting data and storing it and analysing it. And that can be from identity theft, which is a crime that's just uh, going up and up and up every year. So we are learning that not having enough privacy in the digital age is just as dangerous or more than it used to be. And we've always known this, right? We've always had passwords and keys and um, we've never wanted to live in a completely transparent society because other people abuse that power. Essentially, privacy, the lack of privacy gives others power over you. And so other types of harms are discrimination. Um, So you and I are not being treated as equal citizens. We are being shown different opportunities. For for instance, you probably see more ads for high-paying jobs than I do. We are being... So we're not being treated as equal citizens and we're paying different prices for the same product. There are all kinds of examples in which we're not being treated as equal citizens, but on the basis of our data. And then there's um, other kinds of risk that are more collective. One of the things I argue in my book is that it's a mistake to think that privacy is just a personal choice. Actually, it's a collective matter and it's a political concern. So the case of Cambridge Analytica is, is very illustrative. Um, 270,000 people agreed to give up their data and fill out a survey. And then from those 270,000 people, Cambridge Analytica got to the data of 87 million people who were the friends of these people. And then through that data, they tried to come up with a tool that could um, profile any voter in various countries. 
And that shows how when you expose your data, you're really exposing others. For instance, if I give up my genetic data, I'm exposing data about my parents, my siblings, my kids, and even distant kin, and that can have consequences. Already, there have been cases, for instance, of deportation uh, based on genetic tests that the person, uh, the subject didn't do themselves, but rather was, were, were inferred from other kinds of tests that other people had done. If I expose my location data, I'm exposing my neighbors, my co-workers. And so every time we expose ourselves, we're really exposing others. Let's talk about the title of your book, Privacy is Power, because you, you talk about what power means, um, which maybe may, some people may think is obvious, but I think you, you comfort it from quite a sort of philosophical point of view. So, so explain to us why is privacy power? I take this idea from Bertrand Russell that we should think about power much like energy. And one of the characteristics of energy is that it can transform from one kind into another. And power works the same way. If you have enough economic power, you can buy uh, political power through, for instance, um, buying politicians or uh, through lobbying very hard for a particular cause. If you have enough political power, you can transform it into military power and so on. And we are very used to these kinds of power, economic, political and military. And I argue in my book that the digital, the digital age came up with this new kind of power that is related to personal data that has really always been there, but not at this scale. And that is related to the possibility of predicting people's behavior and influencing it. And so when we give too much data to companies, then they are, they are getting too much power and they are designing the rules of our society. Let's talk about your solutions, Carissa, because you go through a lot of solutions, both for society and for the uh, individual um, uh, in your book. Let, let's concentrate um, at least first on, on what society should do to re- regain control over data in your view. Um, one of the ideas is to, to end the trade in personal data Uh, Do you want to explain that um, and what that would mean and some of your other ideas? Sure. So this is the first book to call for an end of the data economy. It's just too dangerous, it's just toxic. And one of the first steps we should take is to ban data trades or trade in personal data. And that means that whenever you give up your personal data, say you go to the doctor and in order to get adequate care, you have to give them your data. That means that your doctor cannot share or sell the data in any way and that we don't create an incentive for more data than necessary to be collected. Because if we, create, if we made it, make it the case that um, personal data is profitable as such, then we create an incentive for more data to be collected than is necessary, and that is too dangerous for the citizenry. Even in the most capitalist societies, we agree that there are certain things that should be outside of the market. Typically, votes, you shouldn't be able to buy votes, you shouldn't be able to buy people, you shouldn't be able to buy the results of sports matches, and I argue that we should add personal data to that list. You also want to ban personalised ads. Just explain a bit more about banning personalised ads, Carissa. The advantages that we get from personalized ads are very small, if any, and we can get them in other ways. So, for instance, suppose you're looking for shoes or flowers or whatever it is you want to buy, then um, when you look for that on your search engine, you can get ads for flowers or shoes or whatever it is you want to buy. And that doesn't mean that the ad uh, publishers need to know who you are, what's your age, whether you're gay or not, whether you have children, whether you have a disease. They don't need to know these things in order to um, give you the, the ads that you're looking for. And the downsides are just too high, even if they were to work. 
we have so many reasons for them uh, not to have them because they jeopardize democracy. When, when it comes to a campaign, uh, we wouldn't be able to be profiled as somebody who can be persuadable or and you know targeted for deterrence as it happened with Cambridge Analytica. So politicians could have maybe two, three, I don't know, ten different ads and we could all discuss them. Journalists, academics, citizens can see them and they can discuss them and we can write about it. We don't have six million different ads that nobody can look through and that we don't know what people are, are getting and are seeing. And then you talk about the concept of fiduciary duty, which uh, applies in different spheres of life, but you're suggesting it for organisations that collect data. Explain a little bit what you mean by that. Fiduciary duties are relevant when there is a professional relationship in which there is an asymmetry of power. Examples include doctors and patients, lawyers and clients, and and financial advisors and clients. In these cases, we are entrusting a professional with something that's very valuable, your body and your health, your finances, your legal case or your data. Many times there are conflicts of interest. So you could imagine your doctor might want to perform an unnecessary surgery on you because they want to practice their skills or they want an extra data point for their research or they just want the money. And in the same way, your financial advisor might want to advise for you to buy many more stocks than would be wise because they get a commission. In, the, in those cases, these professionals can't do anything that's against your interest because fiduciary duties demand that the professional put the interest of the vulnerable person first. And in the same way, if somebody wants to collect your data and manage it because they need it, say, to give you health care or whatever other um, service they can provide, then they have to accept the responsibility that comes with that because it's very sensitive data and you can get harmed. And the responsibility is that they never use that data against you only to benefit you. It's not enough to want to deal with data. It's like having a doctor who says, you know, I I love cutting up people and I really want to know what's in there. and It's really interesting. Well, that's not enough. They have to accept the responsibility of care. And if they don't want to, then they shouldn't be a doctor. So if you don't want to um, accept the responsibility of care, then don't deal with data. So you've got these ideas in your chapter. Some people have suggested that we should all individually own our own data and have a right to sell it on. Um, What do you think about that idea? I think it's a bad idea right? <laughs> for a variety of reasons. One is that it's very hard to understand data. So even when, when people say that we're consenting to give our data to a company or another, um, what does that even mean when you don't know how that company can use your data, when you don't know what kind of inferences they can make, when you don't know where the data will end up? So for instance, when you go to Facebook and you like a page of curly fries, this is a famous example. Uh, For you, it doesn't seem sensitive at all. It's just like, hey, yeah, so what? I like curly fries. But in fact, it turns out that uh, that page is highly correlative with your IQ. And there are companies trying to infer your IQ from that. Now, the best hypothesis is that the... yeah, the best hypothesis is that the creator of that page is probably a very smart person and smart people tend to have smart friends. And so it just turns out that people who like this page and curly fries are really smart. So that's one reason why you know people can't really con- consent because we don't know what we're consenting to. Another reason why they shouldn't be able to sell their data is because privacy is collective. So what right do I have to sell my genetic data when that data includes data about my brothers and sisters who have never consented to that um, to that transaction? You, you've got some tips in the book about what we should be doing to control our own data. And, and t- talk to us a little bit about that and how we can help build the pressure for 
more widespread change and obviously you've got lots of different ideas in there but just just tell us what we we could we could be doing in your view the basic idea is that we need regulation there's no way around it but it's not going to happen until people push back and demand that our privacy be respected so one thing is just to create a culture of privacy. At the moment, we are veering towards a culture of exposure in which people are pressured to share more than they're comfortable with. Um, so, you know, don't um, ask people to uh, for, for more details than you need. Don't publish pictures online of them without asking them for their, their permission. So create a, a culture of privacy. And then in terms of more practical things and, and tech-related, try to choose privacy-friendly products. So instead of using Google search, use DuckDuckGo. It's free, it's really good, and it doesn't track you. Instead of using WhatsApp that's owned by Facebook, use Signal. It's Again, it's free, it's just as easy to use. It's, it's you, you, you will barely notice the difference. And just try to look for opportunities uh, for privacy. Well, look, uh, Carissa Veliz, uh, the book, um, is really, really interesting. It's very good, I think, to have a perspective of, of somebody coming to it from the vantage point that you do. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. We're going to speak now to Jack Hardings, who is Programme Lead for Data Institutions at the Open Data Institute, which is a non-profit organisation working to build a trustworthy data ecosystem. And I guess let's start at the beginning. And I wondered if you could explain to us what the Open Data Institute is and, and what you do. Sure. So the the ADI was founded in, in 2012 by AI experts, Nigel Shadbolt and Tim Berners-Lee, notably the, the inventor of the web. Um, and we want a world where, where data works for everyone. So our mission um, is to work with companies and governments to build an open, trustworthy data ecosystem. And we do this in, in different ways. We're quite a, a diverse bunch. So we've delivered a lot of training and advice over the years to, to different types of organisations. We have a, a policy team that engages with, with different governments around the world. Research, as you can imagine, continues to, to be a big part of our work. And, and over the years, we've incubated hundreds of startups um, who themselves work with, with data in, in interesting and novel ways. How much of what you do is, is, is a balancing act for sort of figuring out what is a benefit and what is a, a risk of, of the massive growth of data we've seen in recent years? Sure. So at the ODI, we tend to be um, we, we tend to be optimists, and so we think access to data. Good. We're optimists on this podcast too. That's why we're here. This is good to hear. I, I'm in the right place, yeah. <laughs> and so we think it's, it's it's vital both now and going forward um, in tackling the the really significant challenges that we face. So we think it's important, for example, that we have information about the actions of our governments and of our businesses to hold them to account when we need to. However. At the ODI, we do talk about three competing scenarios or futures that we think will affect um, how we can use data and, and what for. So we think there's this, this future where collectively we, we, we fear data due to the very real and legitimate concerns about privacy and other issues um, being left unaddressed by our businesses and, and governments. And we call this the wasteland, um, as, as in this case, we think we'll miss out on the benefits um, that data could otherwise bring in terms of supporting human flourishing and driving those new technologies. Um, so I tend to picture this one as a, as a desert valley um, populated with a cactus and, and not much else. The, the other scenario we see is, is one where organisations hoard data and keep it very close to their chests because they've been told that, that data is the new oil and they, and they must do that. So we picture this scenario of data hoarding as, as an oil field where the value of data would only really be realised by a few organisations 
while the negative impacts of its use affect society as a whole. Um, and lastly, the, the future we want to see is, is data being collected, used and shared in ways that, that lead to positive societal and economic out- outcomes for everyone. Um, and so in our theory of change, we represent this as the bright, sunny farmland. Great. So how, how do we get to these sunny... So we don't want the wasteland. We don't want the horrible oil fields with machines boring and drilling down. We want to be in these sunny uplands. Um, how do we get there? What kind of institutions do we need? Sure. And so, so to, to get there and to, to, to reach that future and that ideal, one of the things that we, we at the ODI are really pushing and think that we, we need to do is to encourage um, organisations, so governments, businesses and those in the third sector to think of themselves as stewards of data, stewarding it on behalf of the economy and society and their particular sectors and ecosystems. Um, and that's really where the, this idea of data, data institutions comes in, organisations that play that, that stewardship role. So, Jack, what does responsible data stewardship look like in practice then? So actually, the the example of responsible stewardship that that I like to use the most is is not actually from the world of data, and and it's the National Trust. So the National Trust, founded in in the 19th century, has conserved land and buildings of of beauty or historic interest for for the public benefit. Um, I think is really is really interesting in that um, it stewarded those lands and the, that land and those buildings. So it doesn't uh, doesn't keep them entirely closed with no access to the public at all. But it also doesn't allow for them to be used for certain purposes or to be bulldozed down um, or redeveloped. So to me, it's a great example of stewarding something. So balancing that role of protection um, and access really nicely. And so just as the the National Trust was an institution that emerged to to protect a physical asset, um, our land, um, over 100 years ago, we now need institutions that are fit for the, for the age of data and technology, which is what we're exploring and helping to bring about at the ODI. And these are what you call data trusts? So to us, data trusts are, are just sort of one, one approach or one flavour of data institutions, and they sit, sit alongside um, many others. So, so what, what are data trusts? We can come on to the others in a second, but what's, what specifically are data trusts? Sure. So to us, data trusts are an approach to stewarding data, so governing it and look, governing it and looking after it in a similar way that trusts have been used in the past to, to look after and make decisions about other forms of assets, so investments or, or property, for example, as, as trusts have been used. And they involve one party authorising another, the trustee or group of trustees, to make decisions about data on their behalf for the benefit of a wider group of stakeholders, the beneficiaries. And so to us, we think that's a really interesting approach to to stewarding data. But to me, something like UK Biobank, which is a charity and which is around 15 years old now, um, which stewards genetic data um, 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 from about half a million people in the UK, is a really great example of a data trust in practice. So it has a board of charitable trustees who are responsible for a number of things, but one of them is to ensure that that data is stewarded responsibly. So that means that um, the trustees permit access to that data to third-party researchers to support research into health conditions and new diagnosis and lots of other interesting things, but also protect it and ensure that that genetic data isn't misused. And so for me, that, that's a really interesting example of that dynamic in practice. And, and um, UK Biobank has really come onto our radar as, as a great example in, in the last couple of years. And what are some other models then? If, if, if data trusts are, are one model for a, an institution, what's, what's another? Of course, that's at a really interesting time in, in, in exploring this space and beginning to understand the different shapes and sizes and types. There are a couple, though, that, that already stand out as, as particularly interesting, at, at least to me. 
Um, and one of those is, is data cooperatives and data unions, where groups of workers are beginning to come together to combine data that they've managed to, to wrestle away from their employers and use it for purposes that benefit them. So, for example, we've seen that happen around um, wage discrimination. And we're beginning to see some of that data being used in the courts to help make that case. Um, the Worker Info Exchange is, a, is an organisation led by, by someone called James Farah, um, and it's focused on bringing data together from Uber drivers and other gig economy workers, um, data about their trips and their pay, and beginning to use it for, for benefits that benefits for them rather than just the organisation. Um, and an app called WeClock seeks to do something slightly similar for, for, for those of us based at our desks rather than, than in our cars. And both are really nice examples of this new breed of data institutions that are emerging to, to challenge the status quo and the orthodoxy of, of how data gets stewarded. You've been involved in trials of data trusts. Um, I think you had three pilots. What, 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 did they, what did they show? What did they show about the possibilities of this data trust idea? So we had a couple of pilots. Um, so the, the, the work was with the UK government office for AI. So they were particularly interested in data trusts that could make data available for AI, which is sort of one, one type of interest in, in this space. But the way that we, we, we ran the work was to take this idea and test this idea with different groups. So one was with a, a number of charities and NGOs who had collected data. Another was with um, a sort of smart city project, if you like, looking to, to understand and the, the potential for data trust there. And then another was with um, commercial organizations, businesses who had collected data, and we wanted to, to gauge their interest in, in stewarding it in this way and, and putting it into trust. So we found that in some cases, those organizations, so across those different pilots, um, might be quite happy to, to engage in this and might be quite happy to create some sort of arm's length between them and the data that they've collected. It might help them demonstrate um, responsibility and, and property to their to their customers or clients by putting it under the control of a set of independent trustees. Whereas in, in other areas, we found that organizations, as, as you might imagine, were, were, were keen to keep um, full control over the data, the data they've collected and, and weren't willing to to create this type of this type of relationship. And actually, this this might be of, might might be of interest. In, in recent times, there's been quite a lot of discussion in policy circles around whether, in some cases, um, we should mandate that organisations um, put data into the control of a data trust. So, to apply a, a kind of independent gatekeeper um, across that data, that's an idea that that has been bubbling away for for a couple of years now. And, and when it comes, Jack, to these kind of institutions that we're talking about, data trusts and other institutions. We, we 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 talked um earlier to to Carissa about if you like sort of protecting against the use of data you're offering a sort of different way forward which i'm sure is is complementary but to what extent can the way forward you're talking about protect people against some of the harms that people worry about in relation to data so for me, this, this, this idea of data institutions sits alongside um, the need for um, perhaps uh, furthering our data protection regulation and enforcing our existing data protect protection regulation to ensure that people are protected and that their, their harms and their rights um, aren't, aren't being infringed on. But where I do think that data institutions have a really important role to play is, is kind of in the positive sense. So data institutions emerging, like the examples of the data cooperatives and unions that I mentioned, um, emerging to help people take a more active role 
in the stewardship of data. So having a more active say in, in what it's used for and um, under what conditions, for what purposes and what benefits. And so I, I, I'm sort of really, really excited by this idea that um, data institutions will, 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 will help people to, to, to put data to, to the types of uses that they want to see rather than kind of data and data share, sharing happening to them. Well, look, uh, Jack Hardings, it's really important work that you uh, and the Open Data Institute are doing. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem at all. Great, great to speak to you all. So what do you think? Are you looking forward to skipping through the sunlit uplands of data trusts, data co-ops? You know, as, as ever, as ever, when we do uh, any kind of tech... My, our, he- our heads have exploded. Basically. They have a little bit, but the thing you always come back to is the, these tech companies and the, the the way they have amassed wealth, in other words, by amassing so much data... Uh, governments have been so slow to catch up with it and it's a, a wild west and it makes the wild west look positively like a tea party doesn't it really yeah. absolutely give me the wild west yeah. any day you, you know i think i think in a way what's quite good about this subject is we don't master it the first time but we sort of keep plugging away don't we and you know every time we have the conversation i think you and i become a little bit more knowledgeable maybe and i mean i thought carissa was I thought it was interesting that she didn't like the idea of um, or, or she didn't think there was much use in people um, getting their own data back and owning their own data, which the last time we covered this in, in any depth was one of the ideas that was knocking about that we thought, I think, sounded like, you know, a, a possible way forward. Yeah, I think we're a bit off that, aren't we? Yeah. I, I sort of was convinced by I was kind of more or less kind of convinced by what she um but by what she said uh, about that. Yeah. Um, and, and then you've got all of her different sort of solutions, don't you, about the things that, that – I mean, I mean, basically, this is just the case for some kind of – there just needs to be regulation of this at the, at the very least. And then you come on to Jack's ideas about data trust, otherwise of handling it. It's basically it, – it feels to me like whether it's government or, you know, other organisations too – it's partly this is really complicated, but it but it's just not being taken seriously enough is the thing I feel. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. 
At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Well, for our cheerful person this week, we are joined by the host of the new podcast, The Fault Line, which is terrific. Ed has been sending me late night text messages uh, rec- recommending it to me. Um, not not only the host of podcasts, though, actual broadcasting royalty. David Dimbleby, hello. Uh, hello. Royalty is not right, actually. I'm just, I've just been broadcasting a long time, let's just put it like well, that. Well, such a long time that I was, um, when I was doing my Googlings, I came across a photograph of you in the National Portrait Gallery archives, which was taken in 1950, so I'm guessing you would have been, what, 11, 12 years old, and, and there you are. Are you broadcasting this photo? It looks like you're sitting yes. in a radio studio. I, I was, um, I, it was Boxing Day uh, of that year, and for some reason or other... The person who was going to do it dropped out and they asked my father if I would come and do it. And, you know, you know what nepotism is. Off we went. And um, uh, yes, and I did Family Favourites, it was called. It was a record, a record, choice record. You, 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 you sent in cards and said what records you wanted played. And did you fall in love with it? At the age of 11. I mean, I know obviously your father, Richard Dimbleby, was an incredibly famous broadcaster, but, but did, did you sort of fall in love with it? Yes, I think I did probably. I mean, I've always been intrigued by uh, the, the, the broadcasting craft, call it, the way in which you uh, find uh, the voice to reach people, whether it's in a political interview or whether it's, as in the fault line, sort of talking about political history or whether it's doing commentaries on, you know, the cenotaph ceremony or whatever, that the, that the business of talking, um, which is different for all those kinds of broadcasting, I've always been very fascinated by it. Your father obviously was, was very, very, very famous in his own time. You know, some people rebel. You didn't, you didn't, it, it, it didn't hold any sort of fear for you following in his footsteps. No, it didn't really. I, I'm not sure why. I mean, it's you might as well ask a, a, a butcher whether becoming a butcher or a surgeon becoming a surgeon, or maybe they're the two same thing, um, whether that holds any fear. Uh, there was a particular reason why I, I, uh, I had to get some money because I wanted to marry somebody whose father had said, unless I paid off my debts, I couldn't marry her. And I couldn't think of a way of getting rich quick. And the getting rich quick at the BBC at that time was one, I was a freelance, one radio interview, three pounds, a radio interview that went out on um, FM, which was just starting up as well as on medium wave, five pounds. And if you did it for television as well and held three microphones, you've got eight pounds 50. So that's why I first went into it because you know, my father had said, oh, maybe you should be a barrister or try for the foreign office, which I'd never have got into. 
And sort of this was just beckoning, really. There it was. I, I became a freelance. I've never been on the staff of the BBC. I did an audition and they gave me a trial, you know, come down and see how it goes. Uh, and I was pretty bad at it, actually, too, to start with. What is the art of a good interview? Then I know you're a big admirer of Robin Day, and you, uh, you, you, you said I think that you felt he was a sort of person who tried to sort of draw people out rather than giving them the big inquisition. I and mean, what? No, I talk think, to well, us a bit about that, that. That's not quite right. I think Robin, who called himself, I think one of his books was rather grandly called "The Great Inquisitor" or something like that. Robin was a barrister by training. Um, but what I respected about his way of interviewing was that he, um, he, he was never rude. That's the first thing. He could be blunt, but he was never rude. So he never, he, he quite, he, he himself wanted to be a politician. And he understood that politics is a very complicated craft. Uh, so he never tried to diminish the politicians he was talk, talking to. I mean, the business of interviewing is... I mean, I, I, I find it endlessly fascinating and to try and one of the things is to try and meet on equal ground. And I had a, I had a technique for this, not to be intimidated by the person I was interviewing, um, which was if the, if I thought they were intimidating or felt they might be, you know, a, to remember that I was not, I wasn't important in this. I was doing it for the viewer or the listener. They were the people who mattered and that gave me the authority to do it. And secondly, to imagine them naked. So if you can imagine interviewing Mrs. Thatcher, I'm not sure I did it with her, actually, but Ted Heath naked, it's quite a did, sight. Did you ever imagine Ed naked? <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Nothing. I've never, never, I've, I've, never, I've never thought of anything else but Ed naked. But I've been <laughs> We're Standing all doing on it that. now. Yes, yes. No, um, but do you know what I mean? Just to kind of make them into human beings. It should be a meeting of equals, interviews with prime ministers or interviews with ministers. That's what, that's what I think. And Ed, you were saying you feel a particular weight of responsibility today because you, we, we were figuring out before we started the tape that you, you think you're the first politician to actually interview David. Yes, David has confirmed that I'm the first politician um, in his in his illustrious career to interview him, so I, I I sort of feel like the kind of generations of politicians are sort of relying on me. Just just think, imagine me naked, okay? And you're, yeah, and you're, okay, you're yeah, right. I, okay. We're in we're in business. Um, um, talk to us about your fascinating podcast, The Fault Line, um, which is about Bush, Blair, and 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 Iraq. What what? First of all, what led you to decide to do you, – you did a very successful one about Rupert Murdoch, but what led you to decide to do – to focus on this this issue, which some people would see as a very well-worn, well-discussed issue? Um, the same producer as did the Murdoch one with me approached me to do this one. And he had um, he had such a good sort of ear and sense. I mean, he's much, much younger than me. He's 30. Uh, a sense of, of of what would be interesting about the period between 9-11 and the invasion of it, actual invasion of Iraq, about the way in which the politicians on both sides of the Atlantic maneuvered and manipulated the use of intelligence and the abuse of intelligence. It's been gone over a lot, but what has not been quite gone over so much, I think, is the difficulty that particularly Blair was in, 
um, once he, you know, he had this world vision, always quite dangerous, I think, for for a politician. He had this kind of world vision. He made this great speech in Chicago when um, Clinton was still president, and then he had the successes in Sierra Leone and Kosovo. And he really genuinely believed that it was the duty of democracies to try and subvert or overturn dictatorships, not by war, but to overturn them and re- restore democracy. And that was a sort of fixed idea. So when 9-11 happened, he sort of slipped into the idea that uh, if Saddam could be... Uh, it was against, it's against British policy to unseat people. So th- you come to this curious moment when Blair feels emotionally... Uh, um, that this is a moment when he can do something to um, make the world, make the Middle East a better place by going with Bush, supporting Bush, and then finding, I suspect, rather later on, that this wouldn't play in Britain, that you couldn't just support America without good reason. And he got Bush to agree to go to the UN. They get Resolution 1441. So he, he got the UN resolution. And then came the question of, and this is why I think it becomes really difficult for Blair, which is um, that if the information coming out is not very conclusive about WMD, and it was pretty shaky, and if you finally, as prime minister, having said you're going to support Bush, actually say, I'm satisfied by what the Weapons inspectors have said, I accept their verdict that there are no weapons of mass destruction, so we're not going to invade Iraq. That would be very difficult, because what if that intelligence turns out to be wrong? What if those inspections turn out to be wrong? So you see, backing off something that you've kind of decided on principle to support, backing out of it is very, very difficult. And the point of the fault line, really, is to try and track the way in which that relationship between Blair and Bush, once they'd made the commitment at Crawford, got very, was very difficult to get out of. Even when at the end, Bush said, well, if, it, if this is too hard for you, Tony, don't do it. You know, for Blair, it was really impossible to pull out. Right at the start of it, you say that what happened in Iraq, with, with, with the Iraq war, partly explains the sort of politics of, of now. Yes. Just say a word about your thesis on that. Blair goes to the House of Commons and he makes this powerful speech saying why we're going to war, gets a huge majority in the House of Commons because most of the Tories vote with him and half the Labour Party votes with him. And it's all based on WMD. It's all based on this man, not what this man has done, not about the ghastliness of his prisons and his torture and all that, all of that's taken for granted. The point is, he is an imminent and immediate threat to us, and therefore we must act. And so he does that, and they go, and we send 45,000 people into southern Iraq. And then it turns out that all of that was fantasy, just not true. And he then discovers that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And when we ask him about that, I think it's in a, later on the episode, I said, how did you react when you, dis- when you realized the word that your casus belli had come apart? What was, what did you, how did you react? And he said, I was very angry, instantly angry, not 
not thought I'd done the wrong thing, but angry because my rationale for doing it had fallen apart. I think that simple thing that he said, we're going to war because, and then it turned out that the because wasn't there. There were no WMD. And so you've, you've, got, you've, you've tried to persuade the whole country to come behind you on this, and then it turns out to be a fake cause, even though actually Blair himself always said, Saddam, it's a better world without Saddam. That's a different matter. I think that's where the trust was undermined. At the other end from podcasting, you might say, is question time. Um, We've talked a little bit about the change in the sort of atmosphere of politics. You've talked a little bit about Iraq and its role in relation to that. Did you notice question time did, did, did you notice a change in the public mood? I don't mean about particular political parties, but in terms of the polarization of politics, the anger in politics, and sort of just talk to us a bit, because you, you had a sort of very interesting view of doing this for 25 years, and you must have seen sort of change and, and what, it, what, what it sort of betokens. When, when, uh, when Question Time began, when Robin Day was doing Question Time, um, it was quite a decorous affair. It was quite a, I mean, the, the arguments were very fierce, but it was sort of polite between audience and politicians. What I noticed uh, growing was an anger with politicians as opposed to an enjoyment of debating with them or uh, I accept that he's got his view, she's got her view, and we may not agree, but I'd like you to listen to what I've got to say. The audiences seemed to me to get angrier. And uh, the expenses scandal was the first time. Oh, no, it wasn't. John Major, that was right. John Major's last years in office, when the Tory voters were dismayed at Major and thought he was making a hickey of the whole thing and began turning against the Conservatives and cross-questioning ministers in an aggressive way and all that. And I remember one minister coming out and he'd said, well, I've been told by, you know, number 10 that, of course, BBC always gets a left-wing audience for question time. Um, it's not true, is it? They're all against us now. And that was quite revealing. I think then the next time was Iraq, when there was a lot of anger, which we reflect in, in the fault line, a lot of anger about whether we should or shouldn't go to war. And then finally, of course, the total disastrous um, arguments over Brexit, which got fiercer and fiercer and fiercer up until the referendum. And then immediately after it, the, the line, why don't you just get it done? You know, you bloody politicians. We voted for it. You know, if it had gone the other way, it wouldn't have happened. We voted for it. Why haven't you done it? And that, was a, that, would, that got angrier and angrier. David, thank you so much for, for talking to us. We're really enjoying the fault line. One last question before you go. On election night, how far in advance do you see the exit poll? Do you have two minutes, five minutes? Do you have 10 minutes with it? <laughs> I thought he'd bring this up. 2015. Um, thank you, I Jeff. I tell you, I think um, they, the exit poll is accumulated, as you know, during the day. And uh, John Curtis um, is the great guru, and he's sort of gradually pulling all the information that's coming in from our polling stations, exit polls and all that. And they were 
absolutely fastidious about not telling me anything until the last possible moment. So around about 10 minutes maybe before we went on air, just in time for me to try and remember the figures and not get it wrong when I spoke them. I think we got it. We were locked in a room to do it. And on the rehearsal of the last election I did, I think, we were locked in the room and given these secret figures. And then we couldn't get out of the room because nobody could work out how to open the door, which had it happened in the <laughs> real election would have been pretty chaotic. Uh, look, David, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, I hope you feel we were, we were nice. Um, so the, the, the podcast, everybody should listen to it, The Fault Line. Um, it's really, really interesting. And it's great that you are well, that you're 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 still broadcasting in a different format, and I, we love the podcast format, and um, and so we're looking forward to lots more podcasts from you and and other things too. Ed, thanks very much, Jeff. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Reasons to be happy, is it called? To be cheerful. Cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. I think there's only one subject to talk about. Um, so are you going to stay up? I, I heard this 538 podcast with the guy who's in charge of the ABC network decision desk. And I'd say he was quite discouraging on this sort of staying up situation because he was sort of saying, well, I think it was Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, maybe, uh, maybe Ohio. I can't remember. Um, we're just not going to get a result. We're not going to be able to call it that night. Right. He basically he basically said it's not impossible that we'll be able to call a winner on election night, but it's pretty, it's you know it's possible, but kind of unlikely was the implication of what he was saying. It's very hard not to stay up, isn't it? In 2016, our son was about six months old. My wife had been out gigging, but she was sort of exhausted because her son wasn't sleeping. He was waking up five, six times a night. On the night of the election, she came home. I was watching the TV and she was so exhausted. I said to her, don't let the circus of Donald Trump distract you from the fact that your country is about to elect its first ever female president. Why don't you go and get some sleep? I will stay up and watch it. I'll look after the baby. And and when she's about to make her speech, I'll come and wake you up. At six, and I remember it was this awful bleak night. Like we, we were in this, she was sleeping in this loft where where I am now, and the rain was coming down on the skylights. And I had to go in at about six o'clock in the morning and say, well, "I've got good news and bad news. The good news is Eugene slept through the night. The bad news is that Donald Trump is president." And I mean, it was like she went into a state of shock. It was just horrendous. I I don't really. Re- I think I went to bed when it was looking dodgy, but not certain and then i woke up and we we had a friend staying with us and he said trump's won basically um we had a canadian friend of ours staying with us so um i can't quite remember whether i knew what was happening i don't i just don't i just can't i can't really recall um I think it wasn't great when I went to bed, but it was sort of un- it was uncertain. I just remember him and his family approaching the, you know, the stage to make that speech, and just feeling like it was some. I was watching some dystopian film unfolding before my eyes. 
which has come to be a very familiar feeling. I feel like we're sort of slightly kind of it's slightly giving me the heebie-jeebies. This really interesting use of the word heebie-jeebies. <laughs> I've, I've said before. I remember being in the states in September of 2016, and it wasn't that you saw a lot of. Trump signs about. We were in, you know, uh, we were in a um, a place in New York State. It was that you didn't really see any Hillary signs. There wasn't much enthusiasm for Hillary, and I think Democrats then just assumed she was going to win. Whereas now, I think there's going to be this massive vote to get Trump out. And unless there's loads of people who've never voted before who are thought falling through the cracks of the polls, I think it's going to be fine. I'm not. I'm not making any. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're the guy who told Sarah it was going to be fine. I'm, I spotted Brexit coming though. Well, yeah. I won't ask what you what you prediction 2015. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, into the into the thank yous. I think. Um, I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Carissa Villiers and Jack Hardings. And wasn't it great talking to David Dimbleby? What a legend that man is. Do you think I fulfilled the sort of, the kind of hopes of generations of politicians who sort of were counting on me? Do you think you did? Mm, I'm not sure. Emma Caution produces our podcast. All the research is done by Joel Pierce with backup from Fenella DC and Zoe Gelber and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the idents and the artwork was designed by Henry Cull. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.